This is Dean Mathis, the director of Capital Ministries Michigan. I've entitled today's Bible study, Intended Consequences. The reason I chose that title is because recently in political discussion in our country, there has been a great deal of conversation about unintended consequences of public policy. For example, a program is created which basically means that certain things are going to be paid for and able to help certain people in our country with issues that they have. I'm not debating the merit or demerit of those things. I'm just simply saying that's what happens. And so oftentimes there is an unintended consequence. The government doesn't have any money. And so when the government gets ready to do a program, it has to take money from the private sector. It has to tax people of their resources in order to pay for whatever programs or initiatives that it needs done. And the Bible says that's legitimate. The problem becomes when it gets to the point where people's productivity is sapped because they don't have any resources. Whenever money is taken from the private sector, it means that there's less money in the private sector for discretionary spending or for investment or other things. And so sometimes it becomes an unattended consequence. Also, sometimes the unattended consequence is rewarding a type of behavior that is not productive, that is counterproductive. And rather than encouraging people to, for example, become more productive, it encourages them to become less productive. That, again, is an unintended consequence. I'm not going to go into specifics because I don't want to step on anybody's toes. But there are some things that the Scripture talks about that God has for us that are intended consequences. He intends for certain things to happen. Because with God, as differing from government, God doesn't take from us. God gives to us. In fact, everything we've got has come from God originally. And so, therefore, when God initiates something... He provides the means to carry it out. And the thing that the writer that Peter is discussing in these verses that we've been looking at is a change in our conduct. And a change in our conduct comes when we conform to certain things that God has done for us. We conform to the way He is because He is now in our lives by grace through faith. So we're going to look at that today. In verses 13 through 18, we've looked at conformity to God the Father. Today we want to talk about conformity to the redemption that God has given us. And then in the next study we'll do be conformity to the love of God. So let's look at what he is talking about today of some intended consequences that God wants in our lives because it will bless us. If you address God as Father, so he starts off by saying pray to God, or if you call upon God as Father, there's another way to translate that. When you pray to God as Father, that's how the blessings began to come to us in our existential lives, to use a philosophical term, on our day-to-day lives, where Jesus told us to pray to the Father. Prayer is not addressed directly to Jesus. Prayer is directed to God the Father in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, this is the way we're supposed to do it. So prayer is addressed to the Father, and God answers that prayer through 
A, the finished work of Christ, B, the present work of Christ, and C, the indwelling and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So all three persons of the Godhead are involved, but we address prayer to the Father. As you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Now, the word there, impartially judges, means he judges without respect of persons, without, the literal Hebrewism is without receiving a face. It's a very strong Hebrewism that shows the Hebrew background and also the Hebrew audience of this particular, Jewish audience of this particular epistle. God impartially judges us. He doesn't look at who our parents are. He doesn't look at our station in life. He doesn't look at our degrees. He doesn't look at anything like that. He judges us on the basis of how we have let him form our character. And he judges according to each one's work. In other words, he looks at what has come out of our lives since we have been redeemed, since we have trusted in Christ as Savior. And someday we will stand before what the theologians call the judgment seat of Christ, and we will give an account of our lives from the time we are believers until the time that God calls us home. And Some of what's come out of our lives has come from trusting in Christ and letting the Spirit of God work in and through us and bear spiritual fruit. A lot of what's come out of our lives since we have become believers, since we've become children of God, has just come out of the flesh and will be subsequently removed from our lives, but we will be rewarded or blessed for those things that we allowed God to do in and through us. So, Because that is there in our future, that judgment seat of Christ, that reward time when Christ rewards our good works, then we are to conduct ourselves in fear. The word there for fear means awe. We're to to conduct ourselves in the awe of God. We're to hold him in highest regard in all of our thinking and our consideration. And so we conduct ourselves that way as children of God during the time of our stay here on earth. The word there is also translated sojourning. And it's a unique term which applied to the study that we did about the fact that he calls these people aliens. We are like people who are not citizens but are legal aliens living in a particular territory. The Jewish people that he was writing to at that particular time and he describes where all they were living were Jews that were believers in the Messiahship of Jesus that were living outside of Palestine in areas of the Roman Empire. So they were not only Christians, which made them different, but they were also Jewish, which made them different, and they were living among the Gentiles. And so we have a similar spiritual condition. We are living like people with two allegiances. We have a primary spiritual allegiance to God, but then we are also to live as as effective and honest people in the society where we find ourselves. So this is how we're supposed to live our lives. This is the intended consequence that God meant. And he puts us in the world, we're in the world, so that we can bear witness to the fact that God is offering every person everywhere the greatest gift of all, which is the gift of eternal life through faith in Christ. Now, the reason why we're able to do this is because in verse 18 he says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Wow, there's an awful lot of information in that. We, in our current culture, both in private and public life, seem to be entertaining an idea that we can basically buy our way out of any problem. 
that if we have enough money, if we have enough resources, if we have enough wealth, that we can solve every problem we've got, both internal and external. And the truth of the matter is, that's not how it works at all. Most of our problems are moral and spiritual, and only God can solve that. And we have to go to Him and receive that from Him. And so he said, the reason why we are to be conformed to our redemption is because that redemption is complete. We were not redeemed with perishable things. It's an aorist. It means it's a done deal. We have been redeemed by something that God has completed in the past in time-space history, and that's in the finished work of Christ. So we're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. And then he says, the things that he has redeemed us from One of those things is our futile way of life inherited from our forefathers. Now, this has special meaning to Jewish Christian readers, to Jewish believers. What he's talking about is Pharisaic Judaism. It's the oral traditions that were passed down as the rabbis stated their ideas about how the laws of Moses were to be kept. And so, in the 400 years between the return from the Babylonian exile until the coming of Christ, there were literally thousands of behavioral additions made to the Mosaic law. For example, the the Sabbath law. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You'll do no work on the Sabbath day. In order to ensure that there was no violation of that, some 1,000 or more rules were added to that one commandment. So it became a really burdensome thing for people And that's what Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's also what he banged up against in his life. Jesus is the only man who ever lived who never sinned against God in thought, word, or deed. But he's also the only Jew who ever lived that kept the law of Moses perfectly, not only in the letter, but in the spirit. And so when he would run into conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes, he wasn't running into conflict with the law of Moses or the revealed law of God given in Scripture. He was running into their interpretations of those laws, and he wouldn't submit to their interpretations. He said, you've made man-made rules, and he said, we're not supposed to submit to those. And so what he's right telling his believers is that we've been redeemed from the feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers. And even in Christianity, we over the centuries, have sometimes added a lot of stuff that really wasn't in the original intent of the gospel. And I'm not going to go into all of that, but we're not redeemed by any act of performance. We're redeemed by trusting in and having faith in the finished work of Christ. And it is that spirit of Christ in us that is going to produce this kind of conduct that he's talking about. Because we haven't been redeemed by performance or by possessions, We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It makes that explicit in verse 19. But we have been redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's the redemption price. That's what it took for God to make us right with himself. It took the life and the death and the shed blood of Jesus to deal with the sin issue. That's just how serious it is. And he wanted to remind these people, and he reminds us as believers also in Jesus, that we're not redeemed with something we've done or something we've purchased. We have been redeemed by something that he's done for us. Therefore, we can trust him 
with the day-to-day aspects of our lives and we can believe in him. Verse 20, for he was foreknown, that is Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of him, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Before anything that we currently know was created, the universe, angels, any of it, God in his foreknowledge, that is God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, determined how things would be. It is a part of God's omniscience. In order for God to be God, he has to be omniscient. He has to know everything. And so God knows not only everything current, he knows everything that will be. And he also knows everything that has been. So this redemption that we have, this salvation that we have, was pre-planned. It was pre-planned by God for us And the means by which God was going to carry it out before anything had ever happened was determined. And that's all a part of the creative process. It's all a part of the tremendous love of God that he has for us in bringing us to himself as beings who have chosen to believe because he has also given us free will. The doctrine of foreknowledge does not rule out also the fact that God has given us free will and holds us accountable for the choices that we make in real time-space history. And so that's why he's urging them to be conformed to what God has done for them with this great redemption. So Jesus came, Jesus lived the perfect life that we cannot live, died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And when we our believers in him, we believe in God, we're convinced that this is true, then these things become applicable to our daily lives and we have a new resource and a power for living the way we should, a way that blesses us and blesses others and also gives glory to God. And he reminds us that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was given glory. The Shekinah glory that Jesus had before he came to earth, which was seen in the Mount of Transfiguration experience that Peter, James, and John all saw and also became visible to the disciples at Jesus' ascension, that Shekinah glory will be totally visible when Christ returns. So God has restored him to his glory as the Son of God as he is sitting at the right hand of the Father and is our means of being right with God. And that produces two things in us, so that our faith and hope are in God. Now, as I look around the world today, I see in the political life of our world and in the fear-mongering of our world a great deal of terror about the future. The bugaboo of global warming and and man-made climate change and all of that and the debate over that and the constant harangue about the gross inequities of our culture and the victims among us and all of that. That doesn't mean that true victims don't need to be addressed. They do, and justice needs to be given, and fairness needs to be rendered, and so forth. But we have put our faith and our hope for the future in ourselves, and that is really a very bad deal. Because if you study human history at all, you realize that we're not capable of that. 
our faith and our hope needs to be somewhere else. And this is what Peter is telling them. Look, don't be looking at the world around you as the solution to your internal peace or your external security. You look up and God has given us two things as great gifts to enable us to appropriate these things. These two things are faith and hope. Let's look at what the word faith means. Faith is the Greek word that's also translated believe, and it means things that I am convinced are true. I am convinced that it's true. Now, what is the faith? It is the faith, which means the gospel. So God has given us the good news. Now, what's the good news? That Jesus Christ has become a man, that he's lived on earth, that he's lived a perfect life, that he's died for our sins, he's risen from the dead, and he's coming back. That's the content of our faith. I'm convinced that that's true. And if you're a believer, you're convinced that that's true. That's true. Everything is fixed. It's like Stanislav Pelikan said just before he died, the great Harvard church historian. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters, Okay. We have victory over death. The future is secure. If Christ is not risen from the dead, nothing matters. Okay? This is all just going to fizz out someday, and this life that we've lived is a futile nothing. But he also has given us not only faith, he's given us hope. Now, hope doesn't mean wishful desire about something that may or may not happen. That's not the, what the word means in the Bible. It means a certain expectation of good. Our hope is in God. I'm not concerned about the vicissitudes of my fellow human beings, even though I'm concerned for my fellow human beings. I am not concerned about the ebb and flow of history. As I've sometimes said to some of you, I have read the end of the book, and God wins, and we win. May God richly bless you.